Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is one that's often avoided in church because it has historically become problematic since the time of the Reformation. Nevertheless, the teaching that we will encounter is paramount in our commitment to good works. Thanks for joining us today as we seek to uncover the evidence of our salvation as being present when we do good for others. I brought with me today the phone uh, that I used and carried for years and years in the Caribbean. This is this is one of the old school iPhones is what this one is, the, the kind that takes a minute to move after you swipe on it. But you know what? It still worked pretty good and it's unlocked so I could get it on the carrier that was down there in the Caribbean. Um, one of the things that this uh, little device does, and maybe you know it to be the, uh, serving that purpose in your life as well, is it helps you out when you're in a pinch. When you need help from someone else, uh, these little magic devices we carry in our pockets have the ability to call and bring aid whenever, whenever we need it. However, there was this one day, um, as I was on the island, uh, we were traveling to a, a, another island, and to get between the two, you just take a little, it's called a water taxi, it's a little ferry that brings you back and forth across a little uh, portion of the ocean. Um, but I remembered I didn't, and it might have been my fault, it might have been the old phone's fault, but I did not charge it the night before properly. And as I pulled the phone out of my pop- pocket to um, check, check the weather for the day or, or my email or whatnot, I found it did not turn on. And I had a thought immediately after it went turn on, what if something happened while we're on the ferry? Like, what, what if, God forbid, suddenly the boat began to sink and this was the device that I had that I was counting on so that I could call for help, that help would be able to come. How useful would this be in that case? It's worthless, correct? It's, it's completely worthless. In fact, if, God forbid, the boat was going down and somebody asked, does anyone have a cell phone? I could say, yes, I have one, but what good is it? Does no good. Why? Why is it no good? I mean, it's a cell phone, isn't it? Because it's dead, right? Its battery is dead. And thereby being dead, it fails to function as it should. Has anyone else ever had that happen to them? Dead phone when you needed it, battery didn't charge? Yeah. It is worthless. It's, it is good for nothing. It just takes up space. We, we have a similar danger in, in the Christian life as it is presented. And I need to be very careful this morning. I was hoping to come bring a nice... Nice, lighthearted, easy message, but unfortunately, we are going to wrestle with what is perhaps one of the most um, avoided passages for preachers. Um, I have never heard a sermon on this passage. I have never preached a sermon on this passage, but we have to today. We have to, because we're in this series focusing on the expression of the good news through our lives and what that looks like. But the reason why this message is dangerous is because we are walking on the precipice of truth with a cliff on either side of us. Um, I, I'm going to ask that everybody this morning make sure that you've got your harnesses on, make sure that you're linked to the person in front of you and that your eyes are peeled tight, that you're able to watch very closely where we're walking through the text. Because off this cliff face is a doctrinal error in the church that's sometimes referred to as easy believism. Has anyone ever heard that term before? Easy believism. The, the concept with this 
doctrine is that it is a false gospel. It's the idea that in order to be saved, all you need to do is just pray a prayer. That's it. You're saved. Done. Now go on, live your life any way you want. And uh, yeah, you're covered. You have purchased your fire insurance from hell. That's a heresy. And, and there have been and currently are many churches that make the mistake falling off that cliff to a gospel that is not a gospel. Now, true or false, is the gospel free? True. true. I'm Someone brave this morning and say, let's say all together. Is the gospel free to you? Yes, it is free. But it also has a cost. Now, let's look off the other side of the cliff over here because there is a, there's an equally condemning heresy uh, that is sometimes parred around by its critics as called justification through works. And, and what that means is that, well, well, God gets you 99% of the way there. He gets you 99% of the way, but the last 1%, who's that up to? That's up to you, right? That's up to me. And really, when I when, for, for me to stand before God as righteous, what is demanded of me is that I actually have a contribution to the faith that brings me in reconciliation to God. God does most of it, but then we have left to do our part and therefore are justified. That's the legal term. You can think of a courtroom, right, where the, where the judge slams the gavel down and declares not guilty. That's, that's what justified means, um, that this kind of justification that you and I receive as Christians is mostly merited to God, but a little bit of it is required from you. That's called justification by works. That is not the gospel. Easy believism is not the gospel. Having to earn your salvation is not the gospel. And so what we're going to try to do this morning is we're going to try to thread the needle. All right, We're going to try to walk correctly upon what is true between these two false teachings. And to do so, we're going to be in the book of James. If you have your Bibles, I uh, invite you, if you could, turn there with me. We're going to be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. That's page 1722 in the Pew Bibles. As we're working through this passage, uh, James is speaking to the church as a pastor. And he begins in chapter 2 by identifying the human vanity of favoritism. You guys know what that is, right? Favoritism, where you treat one person better than another because they have something they can offer you. Uh, this, this is completely out of character with how the church needs to relate to one another. We are not, therefore, um, delineated before God based upon our income. Any amens on that, right? No, not on our income, not on our class status, not on our race, not on our progeny, not on our uh, heritage or lineage. There, there is nothing that would dictate a kind of favoritism that would be given to the people of God. And so in verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. 
So that's the, I'm just giving you a little bit of the background, a little bit of the context. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. But that's kind of the backdrop. In James's mind, as he's speaking to the church, this is the message. Keep the law of Christ that's given in the scriptures. Here it is, summed up in one thing. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. That's it. That's our backdrop. And so with that in mind, um, James here is going to address a kind of false teaching. And it is this, the two that I've already outlined to you, the, the concept of easy believism and the concept of works-based justification. So if you're all with me, here we go. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say that you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? (laughs) Good! Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish man. Do you you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You, You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? When she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. There's a, I, I'm going to trust actually just in reading the scripture, there's just a lot of retention that we're all keeping this morning for understanding James's argument. He uses uh, three different examples. One of a guy who's in need, who needs help, and then looks to Abraham, and then he looks to Rahab. Um, we're going we're gonna to work through that and unpack that. I, I want to offer you four major ob- observations. And the first two observations are going to speak to this cliff on this side of easy believism. And then the last two observations, three and four, are going to speak to the cliff of works-based righteousness. So the first is this. Faith without good works is dead. Um, that, that's not uh, 
my word. Uh, that's coming directly from the text. If you look at verse 16 or in 17, 17 says in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is it's dead. Um, there's another verse, verse 20. Uh, your version might be a little different than mine. Verse 20 says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is, my Bible says, useless? Uh, there are other versions that read this as dead. Uh, I submit to you, it's the same illustration I was giving you with my phone. You, you can claim to have faith all day long. Um, but if it doesn't work, it's dead. I have a, a fish tank in my office. And uh, there was one day where in the middle of the night we heard a crash and uh, got up, didn't think it was anything. Uh, next morning found out the fish tank fell over. Now, as bad as that was for me, because I had to clean it up, how bad do you think that was for the fish? A little bit worse, right? Now, I still had fish, right? You, you, you could call me, hey, you have any fish? Yeah, I got fish. What's the state of those fish? Dead. Dead. Uh, yeah. do, do, do you see it? It, really, it doesn't really matter if you have it or not. If it's not alive, uh, it's, not, it's not really even worth having at all. In fact, you might be simply lying to yourself. Um, I, I would put it this way. Good works are the movement that shows the life of a living faith. If you claim to have faith, and that's the circumstance here, you go back to verse 14, this is the primary issue James is asking. You claim to have faith, but there's no evidence of it. How could anyone ever tell that you have faith? I got faith! Yeah. <laughs> Demons even know there's a God. You claim to have faith, but if there is no evidence for it, that faith is a unique kind of faith. In fact, we have a category for it. What James is doing is he's setting up two different categories. Living faith, as evidenced in right actions, in obedience, and in good works. And then the other category, not living faith, but what kind? Dead. Dead, dead faith. And so faith without good works is dead. I, I have been, I guess the, the word's preaching, right? I've been, I've been preaching for like, a bunch of weeks now for the beginning of the year that we need to have good works. Do you think that's important? Do you think that's an important thing to talk about in a church? I, I submit to you that this chapter that we're in right now categorizes for us the exact reason why this is so important. Because faith without works is dead. And I don't want any of you in your Christian life being like those fish just stinking it up out there, right? Just kind of not actually functioning the way that you should. Number two is this. Dead faith is worthless unto salvation. So that's the, that's the worst news on, on it, right? Not only if you don't have actions is your faith dead, but if you have a dead faith, it's worthless. Same, same idea with the cell phone. Didn't matter if I had it with me at all. Didn't make me any cooler to carry around a dead phone because it was worthless if the ship was sinking. And I hate to be the one that tells you this, but ship sinking, folks. This world that we are in, like one giant lifeboat, it's going down. And the only hope that you have 
is faith in Jesus Christ. You need to make sure that that faith turns on and works. In fact, James, as he starts a little bit earlier, you could look this up over in chapter 1. He says this in verse 22, 122. To the church, don't merely listen to the preacher. Don't merely listen to the word of God. And so deceive yourself. Do what it says. It's the word deceive in here that I'm really resonating with because as we look at this second observation, the worthlessness of, of our salvation, I want you to know this is not just my interpretation of the passage. This is exactly what James is talking about. So with me, go back to verse 14, and I want you to see how salvation is the crucial issue he's talking about. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith, what? That save you? It's not going to save you. Or another passage, if you look in verse 20, he says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is just useless? Like, worthless. Why are you carrying a phone with you at all? It doesn't work. It's worthless. It's dead. It's you completely useless. And then the one I mentioned already in verse 19. Um, you believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If you have no evidence of a living faith, if you are carrying around a dead faith, James is pretty convinced demons have that. What's the eternal destiny of demons? Not with Jesus. Not in heaven. No citizenship with the blessings and glories to be known by God. No, instead separation from God. We are talking about salvation here. This is a crucial topic. Good works are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly. Turn to your neighbor and say, incredibly, incredibly important. They are, in fact, so important that well-meaning Christians over the last 2,000 years have swung the pendulum over from this mistake, this cliffside. They've swung it too far in fact, have then misunderstood what James is saying here and have brought us to the second false doctrine that, that you can be saved through your good works. And so that's what I want us to examine now. So what, what, what is the purpose of good works? You're convinced you need them in order to have a living faith, but what is it they actually do? What does a good work actually accomplish? And here, here's what I want to offer you. Two things. First, your good works will cooperate your faith. Good works cooperate. Now that's a legal term. Um, have you ever heard of a, a cooperating witness or a cooperating testimony? Uh, the key word here is evidence. I, I wanted to look it up. So here's the definition of cooperate because I'm not using the word cooperate. That's a different word altogether. I'm using the word Cooperate. This word means to support with evidence or authority or make more certain. This is what good works do. Good works support the claim of a living faith by producing what? Evidence. I can see it. It's there. It exists. Uh, As we're looking at this, there's a few words that are problematic as to why the church has swung the pendulum too far. And I want to direct your attention to them. In verse 22, uh, primarily verse 22, James says, you see that his faith and his actions were, does your Bible say working together? That's a little problematic because uh, it's the Greek words uh, that we would say in English, synergism. 
or synergy. Have you ever heard that word? It comes from two Greek words, uh, syn, which is the prefix that means with, and ergon, which means work. So uh, to work together means that these two are synergistically working together. That's a little bit problematic for theologians because we have other places that are clearly teaching, primarily from the Apostle Paul, that you are justified. You are declared righteous, not by your works, but freely. This is Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 3. That justification is given to you not because of your works, but freely. It's given to you freely. Except here in James, we have the word um, synergism, working together. Not only that, but if you go a little bit further, you'll see the word made complete, verse 22. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Well, this has an implication then that without your works, your faith is what? If it's not complete, it's incomplete. Say what? I, I can't. That can't be right. You're saying that faith alone doesn't save? Oh, you know what? If I look down at verse 24, seems to be exactly what it says. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Whew. Do you see why this is a message that gets avoided many times, especially within the Protestant circles? So what do we do with this? Here, here's what I want you to know. Even when we're talking about the Apostle Paul and James, Pastor James here, both are going to teach that justification is something that's given to you freely that then finds cooperation through good works. Can I say that again? Make sure you're tracking with me. Both uh, throughout the Bible, every page of it in the New Testament is going to teach that a person is justified freely by faith, but then that faith is accompanied by good works. And so we have a cooperating type of evidence that proves you have a living faith. And how do I know this? Well, here's a passage, the primary one in Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking to the church. He says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it's not by what? It's not by works. Salvation is not through works so that no one can boast. But look, look, go a little further. And we're going to actually deal with this passage in a couple weeks in depth. In verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Well, what do you know? It shows up in Paul's teachings as well. The, the concept that is taught in the New Testament is that a living faith will produce good works. And so if we go back to James, the way that we're able to understand these two troublesome phrases, the idea of synergism and the idea of completeness are by placing ourselves back into the right context of chapter 2. Is everybody with me still? Don't let me lose you at this point. Let me ask you the question. Is James talking about works? And you might be tempted to say yes, but he's actually not talking about works. He's talking about faith. And the two things that James is juxtaposing here is not like Paul in Ephesians, where, James, where Paul is juxtaposing works and faith. That's what Paul does. That's not what James is doing. James is juxtaposing living faith as opposed to dead faith. Um, I, just for the sake of clarity, let me draw you back into the text one last time. Look with me in verse 17. 
He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So it's not a question of faith versus works. It's a question of what kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? Because if you have a dead faith, it's worthless. You should have left that at home. It will do you no good when the ship goes down. But if you have a living faith, it will be evidenced by good works. So good works will cooperate. That's the key word here. Not cooperate. Not not that there are two operators in salvation. There's not God as an operator and you as an operator. And the two of you must cooperate in order to be saved. There is only God in salvation. God alone freely saves. Do you know what you bring to your salvation? This will be good news for you this morning. You bring sin. That's what you contributed. To your salvation, you brought trash. You you brought garbage bags with you to salvation. And do you know what God does? He strips the shackles of those sins that that would slow you down. All that baggage, he strips it away. And he receives you freely while you are enemies with God. His mercy is extended to us in this, that Christ died for you. There's a word for this. It's called not synergism, but monergism. Mono meaning one and from Aragon meaning work. There's one worker in salvation. And what we do is we respond to that. That is it. We respond in faith. And so we are proven true. We are saved by grace through faith. And if that faith is alive, it will be evidenced by good works. And those good works will be cooperating a living faith. That is a very important doctrine. And I'm not sure that everybody's tracking with me on that. Hopefully it gives you something to chew on. I hope that you're, you're uh, tracking with me a little bit more on this. Number four, lastly, is this. Your good works will validate your faith. They validate it. So cooperation is a kind of evidential proof. Here it is. And, and validation shows it to be what it is. A living faith. That's what your good works do. They prove it to be alive. There's another problematic uh, word that shows up in this passage that I want to again draw your attention to. Um, in my version, in the NIV, you'll see in verse 21... Uh, My Bible says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous? Does your Bible have something similar to that? Considered righteous? The the word here, um, dikayu is the word here. And it it means justified. If you look a little bit further, you'll see that's the exact word that we do have translated in verse 24. You see that a person is, in verse 24, you guys with me? A person is what? Justified, right? Declared righteous. And then one more time in verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute, my Bible says, considered righteous? That's the same word, dekayu, again, meaning justified. Now, why is that a problem? Why am I taking the time to (laughs) show you a problem in the Bible? Because here's why. I want us to make sure once more we understand the source of justification. Justification is a unique word. Dekayu here, I, I have uh, the two most common translations for it. So the first thing that it can mean up here at the top, it can mean to put right with or to cause to be right. When the Apostle Paul uses the word dekayu, 
most of the time, this will be the, the meaning that he gives. That's the primary meaning of it. It means to put something right. You can think of a, um, a 500-piece puzzle set, right? You, you dump out all the pieces and it's a big mess. Any of your lives ever feel like a big mess? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what does God do? But he puts it right. To what extent did the puzzle contribute? It sat there, a big mess. That's all it did. While my dog chewed on two of the pieces I had to find and then, you know, fix the corners and stick them in, right? The, the puzzle does nothing to contribute to its justification. It's all set right by God alone. That's the first meaning. Here's the second meaning, though. You can also use the word dekayu to mean to show to be right, meaning to display or to, to prove that it is. So... I hope I'm not losing you here with definitions. These two are very different uses of the same word. One of them is in an active sense, actually making it right. And the other simply says, I'm showing that what has been made is actually right. So which is it here? Because the word is used three times. How do we know which way we should understand it? Are your works making you? Are they putting you right with God? Do, do your works of service actually make you justified? Or do your good works simply show that you have been made right? We, we need to make a decision on that. It's an interpretive decision. Thankfully, I believe James helps us with that. And I'd like to show you how he does that now. So if you look back with me in the text, the primary example that James uses is Father Abraham. And then he's up, right? He uses Father Abraham. And if you look at the story, he's going to talk about the hallmark zenith moment in Abraham's life where he displays faith. Ted read it for us this morning. What if God told you to sacrifice your kid? I might find a different God. Like that seems to me outrageously wrong. I don't, I don't know of any possible way I could obey God to sacrifice my child. Unless he didn't make his bed or something if he was talking during church or something. This is what Abraham hears from God in Genesis 22. And you heard the story this morning already. Would it be okay if we just turn back there real, real quick? Hold your spot here in James. And in your Bibles, turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. As Moses records this event for us, for the obedience that Abraham shows there's something that God says for Abraham's benefit at the end. So if you remember at the very end of the story, uh, verse 9, he reaches the place called Ptolemo. Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Question, did God really not know? Let me ask you an easier question. Is there anything God doesn't know? No, we, we understand God knows all things past, present, and future. So for whose benefit does God say this? Clearly not for his benefit. He says this for Abraham's benefit that Abraham would have cooperating evidence of his faith 
that now God also recognizes, almost like a judge in the court of law. Ha, I see it. It's proof. It's evidence. It validates that which is already there. And this is why justification doesn't mean to make right in James chapter 2, but rather to show right, because James teaches us a little bit more about Abraham. So um, without losing your spot in Genesis, we're going to do a little Bible study this morning. You guys cool with that? Say amen if you're cool with that. Okay, uh, turn back to James, James chapter 2, because James doesn't stop with the story of Isaac. He continues, and this is the key part. This is, this is literally the key that helps us understand how to um, translate justification. Dekai. I'm, I'm back in James 2, verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? We just read it. That was it. Look at the conclusion James draws in verse 22. You see, his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 23. This is the key one now. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Time out. When did that happen? Do you hear the story? Let me break it down for you just so we're all tracking together. There's this event that James sees happening. Sacrificing of Isaac is this pinnacle moment where now his faith is proven true. And then James says, that proof, that that action that happened, that, that validating of your faith, it fulfills something that was said earlier. Namely, that you have been credited as righteous because you earlier believed. When did that happen? When did he earlier believe? And this is why I want you to turn back now to Genesis. Except not chapter 22, now to chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is where Abraham and God come into a covenant with one another. Now, we, we already see faith evidenced in Abraham's life as early as Genesis 12. God says, go, and Abraham says, Okay, and he goes. So we see demonstrable, actionable evidence of faith. But it's chapter 15 where it becomes spoken true of him. Genesis 15, verse 2. Let me start in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can I... What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse six, you need to underline this in your Bible. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What was the action that Abraham did in verse six? Did did, did he um, help his neighbors? Did he mow his neighbor's lawn? Did he um, give money to church? Did he go to church? You you see where I'm going with this? I could do this for like five more minutes, giving you things he didn't do. What did he do? That was it. 
That's the word that we use to describe faith. Not works, but faith. Abraham is saved by faith, not by works. He's saved by faith, not by works. I'll say it one more time. He's saved because he believes God by faith. And it is credited to him as righteousness. There's a, there's a really great $10 theological word for this. It's called imputation. It means that it's written on your account regardless of you. It's given to you. You didn't ask for it. It's offered to you and then applied to you. It's imputed into your life. We have the English word credited. Uh, sorry, it's a Greek word. It's a, it's a nerdy Greek word. It's an accounting word. It's a word for the person who sits with all the books on tax day and says, let me get this line matching this line. Let me get it written down in the account. That's what happens here. He is saved by faith. And then guess what happens a few chapters later? Chapter 22, he then goes and sacrifices Isaac. And what's now fulfilled? The scripture back in chapter 15 is fulfilled. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Go back to James. You can let go of Genesis now. We're just going to end in James chapter 2. Because what James is trying to teach us about the, the validating nature of your good works is that they don't produce justification. They reveal justification. So Abraham is justified having his works shown to be the product of his faith. We know this. I'm not making this up. This is exactly James's point. He takes something that happens later in his life as proof of something that happened earlier in his life. So does do works, do good works save you? Yes or no? Oh, that was a little weak, Lois. Got to help him out here, right? Do good works save you? No, they don't save you. They validate the faith that does save you. And that's exactly what James is trying to show you. I, I would imagine if, if we were all Jewish and super familiar with the story, you would have read that and instantly you would have chrono chronologically understood the timing of these features. That the sacrificing of Isaac comes after God has already imputed righteousness, meaning justified Abraham back in chapter 15. So your works then, they don't save you. They simply validate that which does save you. All right, that's a lot. I remember, I hope you're with me. We're walking, we're walking the precipice here, right between these two. So what do we do with this? I want to give you a quiz. You guys ready for this? You got, in your sermon notes, you got true and false. You get to circle one. See, this statement I'm going to put up here is either true or it's false. Let's walk through them together. Number one, God is pleased with me because I do good works. True or false? False. Good, all right. Number two, if my works are good, they will get me to heaven. True or false? False. false. Good. Uh, going to church, giving money, and getting baptized will save me. False. false. Uh, all three of these are going to be dealing with um, one of these particular cliffs. Look at the next two. If I have real faith, even though I don't care, or I'm sorry, I have real faith, even though I don't care about anybody else. Yeah, you, you don't have a real faith. You have a you have dead faith. Last one. A faith that saves is a faith that's all alone. 
I'm, I'm hoping you and your spirit, you're, you're confident with some of these answers. They're all false. They're all false. So let's, let's try to correct them. Let's try to make them true. If I were to change number one, instead of God is pleased with me because I do good works, we should say, because God through Christ is pleased with me, I therefore do good works. Now it's true. God's not pleased with you. You, you messed up the puzzle. You're, you brought rubbish to salvation. You contribute nothing. But through Christ, God now is pleased with you and has imputed his righteousness to you. And so that's why you do good works. Number two, it's not that your works are good. They get you to heaven. But rather, because my citizenship is in heaven, my works will be good. That's where I come from now. My life is hidden with Christ on high. When he appears again, I will appear with him in glory. So get after it now, man. If, if, that's, if that's the eternal destiny, citizenship in heaven, live like that now. Evidence that now. Because my citizenship is in heaven, my works will be good. Number three. Uh, what, so what do I do about these things here? Well, because I am saved, I worship. Because I am saved, That's why I give and I'm generous. And because I'm saved, that's why I obey. Not in order to get saved. It's the difference between the preposition for and from. You guys with me on that? You don't do good things for your salvation. We do good things from our salvation. All right, number four, let's get this one straight. Evidence of a real faith is demonstrated by care for others. So, so if I have a living faith, it'll be demonstrated because I don't just care for myself. I'm like Jesus. I have the same attitude. Philippians chapter 2. Same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He became a servant. So what should you do? Humble yourself. Make yourself nothing. Serve others. All right, lastly, a faith that saves is a faith that is alone. That's not true. What is true? Faith alone saves, but not a faith that is alone. Because there's two kinds of faith. That's what James is getting us to see. In fact, if you have your study Bible, your, the Bible that you love, or I don't even care, if you have a pew Bible, you need to write at the beginning of verse 14 in chapter 2, you need to write these words, the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. That's what we're talking about here. It's not salvation by works. So I'm, I'm running out of time. What can I leave you with? I want, I, want to, I want to challenge you according to how James challenges you. So here's the question. How does your faith work? Or better yet, how do you show your faith? If you go to chapter 3 in James, just look across the page in your Bible, chapter 3 uh, in verse 13. This is what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? And the whole church said, my wife my wife it's not yeah yeah who who is it okay if you want to be wise if you want to have understanding this morning here's what he says let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom so hopefully that's you this morning this is what i want to be i want to be somebody that leaves this place able to evidence my faith so how do i best do that well if you look back with me in the text there were three illustrations that were given abraham Rahab, and then the the guy who's naked and hungry, right? Those are our three people. And so this is how I want to challenge you. Number one, how do you evidence your your faith through works? It's sacrifice. What did God ask of Abraham? 
that he would do what to his son? Sacrifice his son. What have you given up? What are you willing to sacrifice for God? Because if you have a living faith, the pattern that we have is Abraham. And so there will, I guarantee you, a living faith will at some point in your life challenge your affections. What do you love so much? For Abraham is, who do you love more? Your, your one and only son or to obey me? Which, which is it? Which of those? And so what is your love? What, what is it in your life that you are willing to sacrifice? Because wherever that marker is, wherever that line is, you will find idolatry to be revealed. If God is not number one, I'd I, I give you this, God, but I, I, I ain't going to give you that. Then you're, you're not of the lineage of Abraham. And what good is your faith? It's revealed to be a dead faith. Or maybe, hopefully, it's you just learning all the more how God loves you and has called you to live as a citizen of heaven, putting him as number one in your life. So that's number one. Number two, risk and help. You guys know the story of Rahab? I can't get into it just for sake of time too much, but you'll find it in the Old Testament that she lived in a city that was supposed to be part of the land where God's people were to come and to occupy, and she lived as a prostitute. That was her profession in town. She had uh, relatives, she had parents, but she wasn't married, she didn't have any kids. Uh, Her job was selling herself. Well, the spies from God come into the land and they run into Rahab and she could have turned them in to the authority. She could have, but she doesn't. She had heard of the Israelites. She heard of them already. And because of what she knew of them, she was willing to risk her life for their safety. What about you? I I promise you, you decide to live as a Christian in this world, this wicked and evil world, it's going to, you're going to have to sacrifice. It's going to be risky for you at times. So the, the two illustrations that James gives us are um, Abraham, who made a sacrifice, who Rahab, who is willing to risk her life. I think of some of our missionaries, um, uh, the hills, right, in West Africa. What about you? Could you go? They're, that's their risk. They're, they're risking their lives for the gospel. You know what that is? That's, that's cooperation with their faith. That's validation of the living faith that's in them. The, the uh, other part of this is being willing to help. And um, if you look back into verse 15 and 16, James says, suppose you see a guy naked and without food, and you're like, I hope things get better for you, man. Good luck with that. If that's all you say, your faith is of no use. And so instead, you need to be willing to help. Who, who, who needs help? Who, who in your world needs help? What, which neighbor needs a hand? Which family member needs a hand? Well, they're just taking advantage of me. So, you doing it for them or are you doing it for God? We have the story of the Good Samaritan. You guys know the story? Yeah. If I had time, I would just go through it all. You get the point though, right? Here is the one who gives what he has because he's willing to help. He's, he's the opposite of the dude here in James chapter two who's like, good luck. Hope that works out. Instead, he sacrifices, he risks, and he helps. All right, one last one. And this one, you guys are hopefully going to be nodding along with. It's transformation. Because Abraham used to be called Abram. And after he came to faith, he was never the same again. His life was completely transformed. 
The same is true with Rahab. Do you know Rahab actually becomes like the great-great-grandmother? Well, actually, she, I think she is the great-great-grandmother of David. But she comes, becomes the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Because she and her family is spared from the invasion. And she goes on to join the Israelite family. She becomes the wife of uh, Salmon. Who, who then gives birth, I think it's to Boaz. I should probably have put this in my notes here, but um, you guys can proof, uh, what's it called? Uh, oh, what's, the, what's the saying there? Fake news? Yeah, fact check me. Thank you. Fact check me on that one. That's your homework. Make sure I get that one right. <clears throat> Not fake news. Seriously, Rahab, what was her profession? What was her life? Selling her body was her life. To get a little cheddar, right? To get, or to make, buy bread or whatever she needed. That was her profession. And then she comes to faith. She's never the same again. She's never the same again. What about you? Is your life any different than it once was? If you look back to the things that you participated in, the the things that you love, the way you spent your money, the way you spent your time late at night, the things you would use to gratify your flesh, right? Does that satisfy you still? Because if it does, your faith might be dead. Dead. But if there's been transformation, if there's a change that has occurred, that's evidence. That's evidence for us to be part of good work. So this is my challenge to us. As we seek to obey God and continue to do good in this world, it's going to take upon these characteristics. You and I have got to be willing to follow God in obedience to that. Amen. Let's pray.